This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, Vladimir Putin's War in Ukraine has caused the most suffering, the most death, and the most devastation since the Second World War. We've seen nothing like it in Europe, and it continues and will continue. It appears for a long time. Hundreds of thousands of people made homeless, hundreds of thousands of people who've had to leave their homes, 300,000, an estimated 300,000 people, Men, young men who were eligible for a draft have left Russia, it is said. But the economic cost has been extraordinary. People blame it for the economic problems in Europe. In the United States, they have poured billions into Ukraine and the sanctions have been imposed by Europe, by all international authorities. And a question is being raised now, particularly in, in America, where the Republicans control the House of Representatives, about the cost of this war. Can the West afford this conflict? And it's a pleasure to welcome to the stand now Konstantin Gurdjieff. He's an economist and associate professor in finance at Monkford College of Business in the University of Colorado and adjunct assistant professor at Trinity Business School in Dublin. Constantine, thank you very much for joining us. You are, of course, Russian, and you probably have a better and more informed view of this than most. Constantine, the first question I'd like to ask you concerns the sanctions that the West imposed on Putin and on Russia. They don't appear to be working at all. Why? There, is, uh, there, there are many reasons, Eamon, um, why sanctions haven't been as effective as we hoped that they will be, especially at the time when they were imposed. And, uh, you know, to some extent, there's also a lot of heterogeneity in terms of different types of sanctions, what effects they did have on the ground and are having on the ground. So it's a very much fluid and dynamic environment. Uh, Russian economy has shown very strong resilience to sanctions. That is true. But now we are seeing some of the effects, adverse effects of sanctions seeping through, especially in the sectors like, say, for example, manufacturing, capital investment, um, related household investment. 
there is a lot that the Russian economy or Russian authorities have done to counter the sanctions. Some of those were positive from the Russian economy perspective, and some of them were actually, strangely enough, self-damaging. Most of the damage so far to the, for example, international trade side of sanctions um, has been done not by the Western sanctions imposed onto Russia, but by Russian responses to the Western sanctions. So, for example, the termination effectively of gas trade with Europe by Russia yes. wasn't predicated on the Western sanctions. It was predicated on the Russian decision to respond to the Western sanctions on oil mark in oil markets uh, by effectively shutting down the shipments of gas to most of uh, Western Europe. So it's quite interesting in a way that what we're seeing in terms of adverse effects is not necessarily something that was originally intended in the sanctions and the sanctions that were originally designed to harm the Russian economy are currently being seen as less effective than we hoped for. Now, again, it's a longer-term game. We now know that. A year ago, we were hoping that the conflict will be very short and that the Western sanctions will compel Russia to withdraw from Ukraine. That hasn't happened. So we're now looking at what longer-term effects the sanctions are likely to have on the Russian economy. Literally a month ago, international forecasts, international organizations' forecasts for the Russian economy for 2023-2024 were much more optimistic than they are today. And that reflects the fact that we do expect that some of the sanctions will have a longer-term investment side effects and capital spending side effects onto the Russian economy. The other thing is what the Russians did right is that they deployed a very significant, substantial uh, fiscal stimulus in response to the sanctions. During the, you know, basically last 12 months, Russian government has accelerated public investment in infrastructure projects that has been planned for future years, but they brought them forward yes. into the 2023. And they did so in 2022 as well. And in effect, that really significantly offset the adverse effect of sanctions onto the Russian economy. The other thing which is also paradoxical, and a lot of us in the West don't realize that, despite the fact that there is plenty of data to show that that is indeed the case, is that we've heard at the beginning of the war that there is a whole host of Western companies withdrawing from Russian market. Well, so far, actually, data showing that about 10% of the companies, Western companies, have withdrawn from the Russian market, and 90% haven't. Right. So it's very interesting. And that, of course, also kind of, in in a way, the complexity here goes deeper, yes? Even though those 90% of the companies stayed in the Russian market, their activities in the Russian market have diminished, in some cases, very substantially. So they are still there, but they're not really operating or investing in the market at all. And, uh, you know, so there is a lot of really change and, if you want, uncertainty about how different measures are impacting the economy. Um, there are other factors as well. Global economy itself has gone through a very strange period where we had, uh, where we're still having as well, economic activity slow down globally, but at the same time, prices are roaring. So because inflation is rising, that means that the revenues to the companies trading in the markets are rising as well. Or if they're not rising, they at least are supported by the inflationary pressures. So um, Russian economy benefited from that. For example, in terms of the core commodities like agricultural commodities, agri-food sector itself, where Russia had a very strong crop this year, um, last year, sorry, uh, in the last year cycle. Um, and as a result of that was the major beneficiary of the significant increase in food prices worldwide. 
Uh, the same with energy prices. Now that the energy prices have moderated substantially globally, um, primarily driven by the fact that um, the hoped for recovery of Chinese economy after reopening from the COVID is going to be much more robust than it has been. Um, so as a result of that, there has been a moderation in terms of the energy prices in Asia Pacific, but also a knock-on effect on that in Europe and in other markets as well. So as a result of that, the Russian revenues now from energy trade are shrinking. Again, some people would turn around and say, well, that, that is due to sanctions. But in reality, actually, we did recently research myself and co-authors in Italy and in the States, we just did a series of papers on natural gas prices in European markets. And uh, we show that actually the war didn't have really much of an effect at all. And the only you know, really main factor that is driving uh, natural gas prices in Europe during 2022 has been weather effects. So right. um, paradoxical situation, really. Yes. Now, the Republicans control the House of Representatives now in the United States. There could well be a Republican president next year, this time, well, November 12 months, we could have a Republican president. The Republicans question the money that Joe Biden's regime or have pumped into Ukraine, billions and billions in money and in arms and so on. Can the United States afford to go on doing that, as many of the Republican on the Republican side of the aisle believe they can't? And can Europe also afford to what it extent can we attribute the economic problems in Europe, particularly inflation, to the Russia-Ukraine conflict? So there really is two questions here. Um, the first question is, um, can we afford support in Ukraine? Um, the answer to it is yes, we can. Um, the quantum of support itself is not that significant. In fact, I would make an argument that most of that support is misunderstood by the Western public as being effectively a free donation of funds to Ukraine through the military support, military aid, or economic aid. But in reality, a lot of it is debt, which I think shouldn't be the case at all. That's a different argument to make how we support Ukraine. Um, and of course, we know that following the war, once the war itself is over, uh, we will have to deploy even more significant resources yes. in terms of helping to rebuild Ukraine. I personally think that from economic perspective, there's absolutely nothing stopping us from doing so. The, from political perspective, that's a different angle here. And yes. you are right that the you know in the Republican Party, but also in the European circles as well, yes. the whole idea of the war, the whole um, idea of support for Ukraine has been shifting. It hasn't been shifting very dramatically, but kind of glacially sliding off the main agenda. Yes. So if you look, for example, even at the news cycle itself, Ukraine war itself is no longer really generating this kind of attention from the public and this buy-in, therefore, from politicians as well, neither in the United States nor in Europe as it, as it was in the beginning. And that's a major challenge in the democracies, um, in the structures, you know, in the institutions of democracy to sustain this momentum, no matter what the quantum of change is. And so your second question is, of course, is the economic impact of this? Of course, there is an imp impact of this. Yeah, beyond it does. The question is, is it really an impact which is crippling us? Is it a dominant impact? The global economy and European economy and the US economy are currently teetering on the brink of an outright recession. Yes. 
And that has been expected. I expected the recession to happen in the first quarter this year. Now the consensus forecast has pushed it out, of course, towards the second quarter because, hey, the first quarter is over, yes? Um, you know, and I'm a bit surprised by the fact that we haven't had so far a official recession. Unofficially, of course, we did have already recession, uh, especially in the United States, and it was back in 2022 uh, in the first two quarters. So, I mean, we're kind of in this precarious situation. And the main driver for it is not Ukraine or the Ukraine war. Right. And the main driver for it is not the Russian sanctions or sanctions against Russia. The main driver for it is the effectively uh, monetary and supply shocks, two, two major shocks that we have witnessed in recent years. The monetary shock is still ongoing, and the ECB is a great example of that. They're just increasing the interest rates like there's no tomorrow. Um, and if, you know, thousands of peasants die in the process, they don't seem to care, okay? I mean, this is kind of a little bit facetious for me to yes. say so, but reality is they don't really give a damn if they're going to generate a recession. Yes. And it's very clear because right now there is no inflationary pressures response to monetary policy. The increases in interest rates have not been effective in holding back inflationary pressures. And there's a reason for it. The reason for it is that, yes, inflation generally is a monetary phenomenon, but no, the current inflation is also a part of the supply chain disruptions caused by COVID, but also by geopolitical realignment. The United States trade war with China that is ongoing and continuing is probably a bigger contributor to the inflation globally today than the war that Russia is waging in Ukraine. And that's just something we don't really even talk about. In fact, in recent weeks, we've had an absolutely dysfunctional set of the responses to the U.S.-China confrontation coming out of Europe uh, with the Macron uh, trip to China. I mean, and it's, it's just fascinating to see that Europe is once again fallen absolutely out of the leadership position on a major issue. And then we see, of course, the turnaround and the blaming of the Ukraine um, on slow economic slowdown and inflationary pressures. Ukraine is fighting the war for its own existence right now. The notion for us in the West to think in terms of it's too expensive to support Ukraine is like, I'm sorry, I'm just not sure we actually have our priorities right. Yes, um, and it's, it's many people have said, and I'd be one of them, that we can't really afford for Ukraine to be defeated because Taiwan and China, there's an uneasy relationship there. Well, there's no relationship. It's just a question of when China makes a move. And they're much more likely to make a move if the West loses out to Russia than they are if the West shows its resolve. Probably true. It's probably true. To what extent the Taiwan, for example, annexation by China today would be a major economic event? It certainly will be a major geopolitical event if it were to take place, and it would be a major tragedy. Yes, it would be, and it would also be a major economic event because Taiwan is the supplier of chips, the leading producer of chips for computers and phones and all of that stuff. If China went to Taiwan, suppressed the Taiwanese people and took control, they would be in possession of, at least economically, something very important indeed, wouldn't they? And the other question I wanted to ask you about, Constantine, is the degree to which China's support, and indeed the Saudis, the Iranians, but China in particular, his support for Putin matters 
and is a comfort economically as well as in terms of weapons. It matters tremendously, and it matters tremendously in the long run as well, not only from the point of view of Putin, but also from the point of view of us in the West as well. Um, it matters on the, in economic terms because China is, of course, the largest buyer of Russian energy and other yes. Russian commodities. It also is crucially a major investor in Russian infrastructure in terms of the exports of commodities. Um, so, for example, there's some analysis recently published by the um, Carnegie Foundation looking at the relative prices of oil um, and gas shipped to China from Russia compared to the Central Asian suppliers. And it kind of does a superficial analysis looking at the price differentials alone and concludes that Russia is selling at a very deep discount those commodities to China. So China is the net beneficiary of it. But it, of course, completely omits the fact that China has paid for a lot of that infrastructure in the case of Russia. And a lot of this infrastructure is uh, not only increasingly being used for exports to China, but it also is being used for exports to other countries, including India. So in a way... Yes. It is a complex relationship. Um, in other many ways, of course, it is very important from the point of view of the diplomatic support. China has provided effectively through being neutral on the position officially, but at the same time in a background supporting Russia diplomatically, has provided a very significant support within the G20 and within the UN to Russia and within other international institutions. China and Russia both co-lead BRICS Bank, for example, even though the BRICS Bank is not really investing heavily in Russia and uh, primarily actually suspended new projects in Russia um, in, recent uh, in recent months, um, it nonetheless provides for Russia an outlet and link up to the BRICS economies. So it legitimizes Russia and it's, uh, in its war against Ukraine, and it also is supporting of Russia in terms of the export markets, importation from the, um, of Western commodities and Western technologies into Russia through China and through other third parties as well. So there's a lot of different channels through which China operates link-ups with Russia. Yes. Financial markets are very important as well and growing more important. Last year, in the last 12 months, all of the debt issued by Russian companies have been issued in Chinese markets. Now, most of it is now being issued in Renimbi. And some of it is still being issued in, say, for example, U.S. dollars and euros, but through Chinese markets. So it's quite fascinating in a way how fast Russian economy is integrating and aligning with the Chinese economy. From the Western perspective, in the long run, we, of course, are going into the period of the long term, whether it is a Cold War-style confrontation or something else but nonetheless a very direct geopolitical competition and confrontation with China. And in that environment, the last thing we would want to have is a giant supplier of key commodities, key energy sources, and you know, also um, you know, giant supplier of new technologies and innovation into the Chinese market, such as Russia, to be very closely aligned with China and aligned with China against the West. Unfortunately, we're in a situation like that now. Um, I mean, I can go back decades and think of the mistaken steps taken by the West in this context that has helped to lead us to where we are uh, today. But the problem is that, of course, the issue is looking forward. How do we get out of this situation? How do we sever, if you want, or separate this alliance or weaken this alliance between Russia and China? And so far, I'm not really seeing any proposals 
common within the West that a reasonable proposal is how to going to achieve that without regime change in Moscow. Well, let me ask you a question about the United States. It's fair to say, isn't it, Constantine, that its economy, its wealth is, you know, it's the strongest economy in the world. Is it? Is that accurate? It depends. It depends how you measure things. Okay. Uh, of course, in economics, there is no one armed economy yes, yeah, on yeah. the one hand and on the other hand. So I've, on the one hand, I've the had United enough States retains certain, you know, certain hegemonic positions in the economy, and one of those is that it is the number one economy in the world in terms of its size. It certainly is the um, economy that is uh, highly innovative. It is economy that is highly modern as well. Um, it is economy that is backed by the might of the U.S. dollar, which is a hegemonic currency. It's a dominant currency across a number of different aspects of monetary systems worldwide. So, as a result of that, it's uh, you know it has its own strengths, but it also has its own weaknesses. So, for example, when you adjust for differences in prices and you adjust for exchange rates, what we call the purchasing power parity adjustment, the uh, United States is the second largest economy. China is the number one in the world. Right. So if you measure world in dollars, United States is the number one economy. If you measure world in terms of the currencies that countries actually use themselves, the United States is second. And it's lost its hegemonic position in that context. In terms of the dollar supremacy, it still is there, but it is being gradually eroded, but not by China, by the way. The biggest challenge to the uh, U.S. dollar dominance has been Euro so far, rather than Chinese renminbi. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit UH1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Let me ask you about what is a hypothetical situation, but likely to be a real situation in the not-too-distant future. That is that the Biden presidency comes to an end. 
which is in roughly a year, just more than a year. And that administration is gone. A Republican administration comes in. They have control of the House of Representatives now. And most many on the Republican side of the aisle harbor what might be called isolationist tendencies. That is, they feel that in Afghanistan and in Iraq, America has shed enough blood and lost enough what they call treasure, blood and treasure, people and money, fighting other people's wars in countries far away that they know nothing about. And they've had enough of it. Trump is the most crude and extreme version of that, but there are more sophisticated versions of it. As you know, you're living there. Now, if that shift crystallizes and Biden administration is gone, Will there be severe consequences if the United States decides we've got to think of number one and we have our own problems and our own people have their own needs? What happens then? So in a way, what you're describing is that there is going to be a momentum towards vacuum within the yes. Western, if you want, leadership. The problem with the vacuum itself is that it is sufficient so it is necessary condition okay, for the emergence of the confrontation, conflict, and resolution of that process. But it's not sufficient condition. You need to have someone who will step in to replace the United States in that vacuum. And before the war in Ukraine, we always thought that, yes, the United States is drifting away from this expansionary, if you want, yes. agenda, geopolitical agenda. And we welcomed that because we thought that, hey, United States can't win the wars. I mean, to be honest, you know, there's no evidence that the United States has actually won any wars since the uh, end of the World War II, exactly. which it didn't win by itself either. Um, so, you know, and it wrecked a lot of mess around the world as well. You, na- you named Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, yes. Syria. I mean, we can go through the usual list of the so-called, you know, yeah. left-wing, you know, anti-Washington consensus crowd, and it is legitimate l- list of countries that the United States have messed up. Yep. So the idea before the war in Ukraine was that there will be somebody else stepping into the place to not displace United States, but uh, but to augment United States' projection of hard power with a soft power, and that was European Union. Yes. And the expectation and hope was that the European Union will develop a coherent agenda that will be representative of the uh, European democracy and will be at the same time also constructive in engaging the countries like Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, and the rest of the world um, around us. And of course, the war in Ukraine has turned all of that upside down. It's shown that the European Union is incapable. Not only it is incapable of reaching any sort of leadership position within the war that is happening on the European soil, in the Europeans' backyard, yes. I mean, it also is at the same time actually amplified the amount of bickering and discontent that there is there. Yes. Look at what's happening right now, for example, between Poland and Germany. What's happening in terms of, they say, for example, Poland, Germany, and Hungary? Look at where Slovakia is vis-a-vis all of that. We're kind of seeing that shift of power back and forth between the Western Europe and the Eastern Europe, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, and none of it is functional, none of it is leadership. So as a result of that, my biggest concern actually is when the elections come next cycle, I probably would agree with you, Joe Biden is a spent 
uh, you know, spend power. I mean, there's an interesting way of thinking about this. Joe Biden was a Delaware senator for 37 years. Yes. He was 37 years. I mean, I haven't done anything consistently in my life for 37 years other than lead so far, okay? <laughs> but, so... You still have dancing, normally, aren't you? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, normally, it's a standard rule that, you know, a former senator or a governor will always carry their home state. Yes. Okay? Especially somebody who was for 37 years there, okay? Joe's rating in Delaware now is minus 3%. Right. Okay, so in yes. other words, Joe is deeply unpopular with the people who should know him best. There's absolutely not much of a chance that Joe is going to win anything. Right. Comes 2024. Maybe, hey, you know, like it's a long way before, but I mean, at least in current no, terms. His poll numbers are bad yeah, all, all across the states. Yeah. And he can't project leadership. Every time he opens his mouth, you kind of go like, mm, okay, really? You know? Um, but, you know, so as a result of that, there's a likelihood that Republicans will come in to replace the Democratic administration. Yes. And you are right, they're going to try to project more domestic focused. And by the way, I actually think that it makes sense to have domestic focused agenda. The problem that I have is that there is nobody to step in and fill the vacuum of the United States. So the worst case scenario can happen. And you can have Jan Stoltenberg and NATO taking yes. over the rule or the reins over the European and Western alliances in a context of leadership. And NATO as an organization is not designed for leadership. It is designed for actually execution of something that comes down from yes. leadership, from political and democratic leadership. Yes. NATO is not a democratic institution by any possible means, by itself. Okay? And, and it can't formulate a coherent policy. It never done. No, so it, as a result it, of that, imagine yeah. that it steps into the vacuum and actually is given not only a chance to do so, but actually is given a momentum to do so. I mean, that's effectively like putting generals in charge of the Western world, you know? Yes. Um, and that's a bit scary. And it also is scary because within NATO itself, there is also that realignment of power, which is shifting away from the traditional Western um, yes. World War II and Cold War experiences towards the Eastern European um, kind of, you know, if you want perspective. And I, like, not to say that it's not justifiable perspective, don't take me wrong, okay? But whichever way you want to put it, it's certainly not the same trajectory of geopolitical, if you want, position and policies that we have expected, say, for example, two years ago, three years ago, to take over the Western leadership. So it's it's effectively is an anthill that has had, you know, a Russian bear smash into it. Okay, let me ask you a final question, Constantine, and it really is about the economy of Europe. And it's a two-part question. One is about Europe's economic coherence and strength, because it seems to me, for example, Macron was in China last week. He believes in keeping that door open and having a relationship. Angela Merkel, when she was in power, spent 16, her 16 years in power in a way, trying to establish a working relationship and a trading relationship with China and with Russia, and that didn't end very well so far. Is there a danger here that Europe will become economically divided and irrelevant, and the United, and the United States will become disinterested in Europe and its concerns? 
So if you look at the trajectory of the United States, whether it's Trump administration or it is Biden administration, and the best manifestation of that is the IRA, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, yes, the Biden administration has passed, um, United States is positioning itself as the regional superpower uh, with a hegemonic global outreach. Yes. And economically, it is bringing onshoring or close shoring as much of the production capacity of the and value added as possible. The beneficiaries of that, of course, will be predominantly North, uh, North, North American countries, and NAFTA particularly um, group of countries, Mexico and, the, and Canada, to a great extent Canada and the United States, and lesser extent Mexico. Um, but it also means that Europe has fallen to the side in the United States kind of you know, economic, if you want, power projection, right? Yes. Um, so yes, you are right. Uh, there is there is this possibility that Europe is going to become even less relevant yes. in the longer run, primarily because of the combination of things that are impacting also Japan, demographics of aging, for example. Yes, the fact that Europe and Japan both have fallen out or removed themselves from the potential strong power, economic power sharing links with the likes of, say, Russia, which is a major commodity producer, global commodity producer, and global Arctic power as well. And then, of course, you have, um, in addition to China, and then beyond that, all of the BRICS, yes? So, in a way, the world is split into the three camps right, right. now. The One of those camps is the BRICS slash Russia-China, and the yes. Russia and China actually positioned nicely within the BRICS in that space. There is Europe there, and then there is the United States. You can think of this split into three super continents in a way as a kind of opportunity space for Europe. Europe can carve out an independent space. Yes. Is that independent space of being like, say, for example, Switzerland plus, in a way, trading with China and investing with China, trading with Russia and investing with Russia and the BRICS and everyone else, but at the same time having somewhat, you know, if you want, alignment within the West maintained as well? I don't know. The, uh, but the issue that I have, just as you are, um, is that we don't really see any coherent strategy yes. emerging from Europe. Yes, There is not even a discussion from European point of view. And this is why it was interesting what Macron was saying. And I also think the way it was interpreted as you know in the different countries in Europe uh, was also very interesting. There is a nuance to what Macron was saying in Beijing. Is, and that nuance is not necessarily positioning Macron's thinking uh, as the antagonism to the United States confrontation with China. It is in a way kind of trying to tread the waters between the two superpowers. Yes, and that Europe should have a separate identity. Exactly. And, and I mean, look, I mean, the whole point of the European project itself is to preserve the identity of Europe, yes. unique identity of Europe. And that identity, uniqueness of that identity doesn't have to be a confrontation. We've been taught during the years of the Cold War and Unfortunately, Vladimir Putin is helping us to revive this again rhetoric, that there is only choice between the two possible alternatives, yes. the evil one and the good one. But in the real world, it isn't. In yes. real world, the powers emerge, develop, invest, and grow and expand on the basis of much more complex strategies than just choosing one side or the other side. And Europe actually, I think, was pretty successful in the process of what we call, you know, like this kind of trade alignment and yes. investment alignment and an attempt to bring Russia into the folding doll. Of course, that success has been canceled out by one particular event. And that yes. event started in 2014 and culminated in 2022. 
um, that event is Russian aggression against um, Ukraine and the Russian perception that it is okay for Russia to ha- exert total and complete dominance over its own realm of interest. It is a strategic mistake by Russia, but it is also a mistake which is forcing Europe's hand right now uh, away from the evolution of the geopolitical position and strategy that would have benefited Europe in the longer run. But Europe has to find that. Europe has to go back and find its place in global economy and find its place as a coherent entity in the global um, geopolitical um, theater of um, confrontations as well. Okay, Constantine, thank you very much. As always, what you've got to say is fascinating, and we're very grateful to you for joining us from far off Colorado, but we know you'll soon be back at the Trinity Business School, and we hope to see you live. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. That's Konstantin Gurdjieff. Fascinating, as always, to listen to him. We're grateful to Konstantin, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.